Thanks be to God. In our Ash Wednesday service earlier this month, we read these worms, words, excuse me. We read these words from Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you so that you may be revered. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is great power to redeem. These words of poetry, thousands of years old, from Jesus' Jewish heritage, tell us what Jesus tells us again in this story. We are all in deep need of forgiveness and grace. And the ability to accept forgiveness and grace is connected to our ability to love. In the life of the church, as a community who follow Jesus together, we praise God for corporate salvation, not corporate like business, but, you know, the salvation of a community together, a body together, and individual salvation. So a both and. Now, this story is about the latter about individual salvation. And it invites us into a high stakes conversation about what sin is, what salvation is, what forgiveness is, why we need forgiveness, and what it looks like to accept grace. So here we have Jesus at table eating with a Pharisee. Pharisees were a particular sect of Judaism that emerged two, three hundred years before Jesus was born. Uh, they believed in a high level of personal responsibility in faith, and they believed that religion should be seven days a week. It wasn't just confined to the temple or the Sabbath. It was part of everything we do. The Gospels usually paint them as the bad guys, which is uh, a subjective portrayal. Um, they're the guys who are always getting after Jesus because he's not following the rules, right? So it's easy to, to see them as uh, nitpicky and legalistic. But here we have Jesus eating with one. All right. Enter the woman. Now, uh, we aren't told her name. And it's easy to mix up this story with another story from the Gospels of another woman who also anoints Jesus' feet. Uh, in the Gospel of John, there is a story of uh, Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, who um, anoints Jesus' feet with perfume at the Last Supper. That is not this story. Um, and while we're on the topic, I also just want to point out that the Mary in that story, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, the sister who uh, sits at Jesus's feet while Martha is all stressed getting dinner ready, is different from Mary Magdalene, uh, who Jesus heals from demons. And there is nothing in scriptures that say that uh, any of those Marys or this anonymous woman in the story were prostitutes. 
Just want to make that clear. All right, so back to Luke. This woman is nameless. We're told she's a sinner. And that's all. We're not told the nature of her sin. We're not told the frequency of her sin. We're not told the severity of her sin. But um, some translations of the Bible will call, will use the word harlot in this story, but that's incorrect because in the original Greek, the word Luke uses is um, hamartolos, which basically means a sinner and sin means someone who violates God's will. He doesn't use the word that is usually used for prostitute, which is porne. And you can hear in that the root of our word uh, pornography today. But apparently, according to Luke, that's all we need to know. She's a sinner. She's done something somewhere, sometime that has caused harm to God's creatures. She has probably harmed herself in the process, and she has distanced herself or uh, blocked herself from God. Whatever she's done, she knows it. And this is where she's a role model for us, because she has the courage the honesty and the humility to know that she's not okay as she is and that she needs the forgiveness, the all-encompassing, generous, gracious forgiveness that Jesus has on hand. So this invites us to ask ourselves, what do, from what do we need forgiveness? And this is where I think temptations creep in. There's, there's three that I think uh, tend to pop up here. So one is the temptation to believe that we're just fine as we are. We don't need anything from God. Thank you very much. We've got this. Second, the temptation to believe, to go to the other end of the spectrum and believe that we're lost causes. What we've done in our life is just too horrendous. We ourselves are just too worthless and there's just no way we can be forgiven. Number three is the Temptation to anxiously over-inspect our lives with a magnifying glass, scared that maybe the things we didn't think were a big deal are actually terrible, and we should really be a lot sorrier uh, and maybe more scared than we are. Last week, we heard the story of Jesus being tempted in the desert. And the thing about temptation is that it's a lie. Because what temptation is trying to tell us at the heart is that whatever is temptation tries to get us to follow another God. Temptation says to us, if you just buy this thing, do this thing, give into this thing, you'll find what you're looking for. So temptation number one, the temptation to say, you know what, we're good. I think sometimes this is out of fear, right? Because uh, what, what we're trying to avoid is um, uh, a fear-based faith that tells us, you know, we're, you know, we're all miserable, terrible, rotten sinners, and you should be down on your knees every day of your life thanking God that he got on the cross for you. Like we're trying to avoid that. And so we swing to, no, I'm good. But the book of 1 John in the New Testament tells us, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
In other words, if we convince ourselves that there is nothing that we have ever done, said, believed, left undone, left unsaid that needs forgiveness, we're kidding ourselves. We're human. We're fallible. We have all caused harm in our lives to ourselves and to others. Now, if we go to the other end and we believe we're outside the realm of forgiveness, that we're so shameful and our actions so heinous that we're, that there's just no hope, we are also kidding ourselves. We are God's good creation in whom God is well-pleased. Who are we to say we're worthless? And if we seriously think that our mistakes and misdeeds are beyond God's redemption, again, we need to ask ourselves, who are we to put limits on God? And then temptation number three, if we believe that we have to go back through the past, through the file folders of our life and our memory, looking for terrible things that God is waiting for us to apologize for, or if we believe that we have to wear a hair shirt forevermore in order to atone for that chocolate bar we stole as a kid, then we're also kidding ourselves. The prophet Micah tells us so. What does the Lord require of you but to seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God? While God has infinite compassion on our shame, I also suspect God occasionally rolls his eyes at the number of molehills we manage to make into mountains. And God is more concerned with the number of mountains that we manage to make into molehills. So what is it for which we actually need forgiveness? I think the answer is in the very first commandment God gives God's people. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the failing that breaks God's heart again and again. This is the great recurring failure of God's people throughout the Old Testament, turning away from God to false idols and false gods. And we all have those. We all have times when we listen to our fear and insecurities. Like, you know, when I say false idols and false gods, I am not talking statues of Buddha in our homes or um, pictures of, uh, you know, uh, the, the, our blessed lady from a trip to a Catholic country. I'm not talking about objects necessarily. I'm not, I'm talking about the times we follow the voices or lures or images or promises that are false. So our fears and our insecurities, acting out of our small selves, out of acting out of fear. Uh, we chase status or a hollow self-image. And when I say status, that can come in many forms, right? Like it's not just the, the typical um, status seeking of having all, the, having all the stuff, having the new stuff, the bigger, better, more expensive stuff. It can be status of being the person on whom everyone relies. That's one for me. Um, or it can be the status of being on the other end of being so helpless that we need everyone to be helping us. And the more people help us, the more we know we're loved. We all have resentment and grudges that we carry for years, stories about who we are and what we're worth that don't line up with God's story about us. We all run from our pain and our shame, causing more damage to ourselves and others along the way. And we have times when we just refuse God's love. We refuse truth and mercy and justice, and we choose instead pettiness or smallness 
or anger. We've all caused pain, we've all been hurt. So to accept that we need forgiveness is an act of great courage. To accept that we need forgiveness requires honesty, right? We have to be honest with ourselves and God about what we've done. Healing doesn't happen without that. Ask anyone in a 12-step program. And then there's also surrender. Because sometimes accepting forgiveness, accepting grace is the hardest part. It's almost easier to be yelled at or punished because then we feel like, okay, we've, 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 uh, like tit for tat, your, my suffering, the pain of being yelled at or punishment for, for whatever suffering I've caused. Okay, the books are even, uh, I've paid my debt. But grace to be forgiven. Back in 2016, in my first year at VST, I got into a car accident with my mom's car. I was stone cold sober. I was not dry. I was not speeding. I was fine. The car wasn't. And my mom forgave me. And it was almost like it was almost unbearable. So she didn't ask me to replace the cost of the car. She didn't yell at me. She didn't uh, exact anything from me. Like I was a seminary student, I didn't have a lot of money. She said instead, why don't you buy a portion of whatever new car I get with me? And there was something about the generosity that was so uncomfortable because I think I just had to, it meant accepting that I was loved even as this flawed person who had damaged her car beyond repair. I think that is the hard part of grace. To accept that we don't have to atone, we don't have to work, we don't have to earn their forgiveness. There are amends to be made, absolutely. Micah mentioned justice. There is justice that we, there are reparations that we as individuals or societies or institutions need to do. But to accept forgiveness, to say, you love me even though I did this thing, is hard but it is so freeing because on the other side of that friends is the is the freedom of knowing that we don't have to earn love that we are lovable even as our flawed selves that grace does not depend on how organized or productive or or anything we are we are loved simply because we are so what does it look like to actually do this well, I think two things. I think it requires practice in for accepting forgiveness from others. So my mom, accepting forgiveness from others. It can be things large and small, right? It can be things like, um, you know, I have a habit sometimes of being late and it's so uncomfortable. And so when friends really don't mind that I am late, to accept their forgiveness and to not then make a thousand apologies you know, to just say, I'm sorry, and let it just sit there. So I think accepting forgiveness from one another is part of how we practice being forgiven and accepting grace. I think the other part really is to breathe. 
I, I think that's it. I think just to sit with the discomfort of maybe the pain of recognizing what you've done wrong, but also then to just sit and breathe with forgiveness. Maybe to write a letter to ourselves in God's voice. What would God say to us as God's beloved children? Maybe to um, ask our friends, how bad do you think this is? Maybe to hear it from someone else. There are, but whatever, whatever the means, I think it comes down to just sitting with and breathing it in. I'm not sure it's an intellectual exercise. I think it might be right down in the gut. So let's let ourselves be loved, friends. Let us allow God and Jesus to forgive us. After we weep the tears of grief over our pain and the pain of the world and the pain we've caused, just think of the intimacy of this woman and Jesus. She washes his feet. She kisses them. She spreads perfume. What would it look like if God held your feet? What would it look like if God anointed your feet with perfume? What would it feel like to accept that intimate, deep love from God? I think that's the invitation of this story. Amen.